Well, good morning. I add my greeting to Austin's from earlier in the service. My name is Nick, and it is good to be with you this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I do believe that Austin is going to continue uh, preaching from 1 Thessalonians when he's in the pulpit, and he will start that at some point in the future. But for a few weeks, this will be our last time in 1 Thessalonians. But we do come to chapter 2 this morning, and we'll go through the first six verses. And I invite you, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's holy word out of respect for it. Then I'll pray, and I'll invite you to be seated. Once again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ." Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word. He's given it to us that we might know him, love him, and learn how to live in light of his love for us. Let me pray and I'll invite you to be seated. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So Holy Spirit, take your word and grow your people through it. Make us more like Christ, even for the next 30 minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've confessed in the past on a number of occasions that I have only recently started paying attention to really things like the news. Uh, I didn't read the news for 30-something years of my life. I never voted until recently, and so politics is a new thing for me. And so that means that the, the term smear campaign is a new one for me. You guys familiar with this term, smear campaign? That's what's happening to Paul from those who are non-Christians in Thessalonica. Here's what Cambridge Dictionary says about a smear campaign. It's a planned attempt to harm the reputation of a person or company by telling lies about them. It actually seems to me that you can smear someone even if what you're saying is true. So which, which led me to look elsewhere, and I think one of the best definitions of a smear campaign comes from Wikipedia, if you wouldn't believe it. Here's what Wikipedia said. And I cut off some of the quote, but a smear campaign is an intentional premeditated effort to undermine an individual's or group's reputation, credibility, and character. That's what 1 Thessalonians 2 is about. And that's what Paul is responding to, a smear campaign against against those outside of the church who who are trying to ruin his reputation. They're false accusers. 
And these false accusers would like to win back the church in Thessalonica, like a politician would like to win back some of those who have gone to the other side. So he, or she smears the other side by discrediting Paul's reputation and his ministry and by, by questioning his motives. Perhaps these new converts to Christianity will come back and they'll serve these false gods and they'll forget that Paul and Timothy and Silas ever existed. Perhaps. Now, we don't know exactly who these people are, but they are telling lies. They're intentionally undermining Paul's reputation, and we kind of deduce that what he's talking about are the things that he's saying, or the, the things that they are saying about him. Paul reminds the church that despite what's happening in Thessalonica, despite what he and his friends have faced, the gospel has been declared with boldness. And when the gospel is proclaimed with boldness, when it is declared with boldness, no smear campaign can make the effect of the gospel a vain thing. So Paul's defending his ministry by pointing to his calling to faithfully preach the gospel, which is itself pleasing to God, and faithful preaching of the gospel. Hear this, Grace Church, is never in Here are the four things that we are going to look at, the four headings this morning. Paul's ministry is not in vain because the gospel was preached boldly, the gospel was preached uprightly, the gospel was preached honestly, and the gospel was preached doxologically. Let's get started with the gospel was preached boldly. Look back with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We need to remember what was taking place at Philippi. Philippi was the place that Paul was followed around by a slave girl that had a spirit of divination. And the spirit was really good for the pocketbook of the owners of this slave girl. The problem was that the spirit that took up residence in her knew who Paul and Silas were. And they followed them, the the girl followed them around. And the spirit kept talking about who they were. They said, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And although that spirit was speaking the truth, Paul got so fed up with this annoying uh, spirit that was filling this girl that he uh, commanded the spirit to come out of the girl in the name of Jesus. And guess what? The spirit came out. Problem solved. Actually, new problem created. Because the owners lost their cash cow. And so they go to the men of the city and say, these guys are disturbing the city. They're advocating for customs that are not acceptable for us to practice in a Roman society. And so they, they accused Paul and Silas of trumped up charges just like they got accused of in Thessalonica. So they were beaten. They were beaten with rods. They were stuck in prison, but not just, not just any prison. Inside the inner portion of the prison where the worst of the worst go. And they had shackles put on their feet so they couldn't escape. So when Paul says that he, was, that he suffered and they were shamelessly treated, he meant it. And when he says it took boldness in our God to declare the gospel in Philippi and in Thessalonica in the midst of much conflict, he meant it. 
Now, I don't think that there's currently a mob waiting for me or for you outside, although I don't know for sure, but I don't think so. The gospel must still be preached with boldness from the pulpit, but also from the pew. All of us are called to this kind of gospel boldness, this fearlessness, this, this frankness, this openness of preaching the gospel. All of us have to do this, but it especially must come from the pulpit. Now, where does this boldness come? Where does it come from? Look at the second half of verse 2. We had boldness in our God. We had boldness in our God. In the midst of much conflict, Paul preached boldly in our God. Another way to say that would be that he did it in the power of God. And this is consistent with Paul's emphasis of chapter 1, that their election is from God. It's consistent with the way that he says the gospel came to them. It didn't only come to them in word, but it came to them in power, and it came to them in the Holy Spirit. In the midst of conflict, bold preaching with divine assistance and much courage and fearlessness always does a body good and a world good. And this is what Paul was committed to. So by way of application, in the midst of wherever God calls you to go tomorrow and next week and next month and so on and so forth, are you prepared to preach the gospel with this kind of boldness? Statistically, over 90% of the people that you will meet in Utah this week are destined for hell Are you prepared to preach the gospel with boldness? Taking a step back before you're able to preach the gospel with boldness. When there's an important issue being discussed in your cubicle or wherever you find yourself this week, are you willing to boldly tell that person what God's word says about whatever comes up? Because there's likely, maybe there's a, there's a Bible verse that you can just quote them and say it to them, but, but really what we need to do is be informed and be so saturated with God's word that biblical principles and biblical wisdom come out of us, no matter where we find ourselves. Boldly engaging in contemporary topics from a biblical worldview is needed in every sphere of our society. It takes hard work. It takes a willing posture. It takes preparation. It takes boldness, it takes willingness, and it also takes gentleness and love. Don't forget that part. It is our duty as believers to place ourselves under God's word and then be ready to tell other people what God's word says about life. And many of us probably have a situation in our minds right now where we messed it up. We didn't say anything or we said the wrong thing. Friends, move along. Move along. Quit thinking about the past and get ready for the future so that you don't have to say that again the next time it comes up. But, but make the decision now that you'll be prepared to boldly do what God has clearly called you, every one of you believers, to do. Not only was the gospel preached boldly, it was preached uprightly. It was preached clearly. Clearly. It was preached without error, verse 3 says. 
For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. It was an appeal. Paul made an appeal to them. When was the last time you thought about the gospel as an appeal? As a call for a decision. Decide now, is Jesus Lord? Or is he not? If any of you are unbelievers today, I appeal to you now, make the most important decision that you'll ever make. Is Jesus Lord? Is he the only hope that you have in life and death? And the answer to that question is yes. So respond. Today, youngest children, those who can hear my voice and are old enough to respond. If you have not yet responded to the outward call of the gospel, respond today. Talk to your parents after service or one of the elders. It was an appeal with an expected response. And I think we forget about this aspect. Do we allow the people that we're in, in relationship with to respond? That might mean some uncomfortable silence. That's okay, the Spirit works in that time too. The truth is people want to be known and they want to be loved. And the one who knows them the most and who loves them the deepest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Give that Jesus to them boldly, lovingly, with kindness and hopeful expectation and ask him to decide. That's what the gospel offers, and we need to preach it clearly with an appeal. And we need to remember that the gospel presentation is not a TED Talk. It's not a podcast. It's not a lecture. It's a matter of life and death. What Paul wants the church to remember, and he wants us to learn and to remember, is that he preached the gospel uprightly. He didn't preach with error theologically, and he didn't preach with error morally. The word can mean both. I think it probably has to do with the moral side, because that's a lot of what's coming at Paul from the non-believers, and, and mixed with impurity and attempts to deceive, it makes sense that Paul would be talking about his moral life. His life was free from error. His life was free from impure motive, free from deceit. Not, not sinlessness, but he was growing in Christ-likeness in the Spirit, and it was evidenced in his life. A ministry of error and a ministry of impurity and a ministry of deceitfulness would be evidence of an unfaithful ministry, a selfish ministry, a self-seeking ministry, which is probably likely a part of what he was being accused of. See, in this day, traveling philosophers and uh, and and people who thought they were wise would always be coming in and out of, of large cities like Thessalonica, and they were trying to make a name for themselves. Their motives weren't pure. They were, they were deceitful by design, and they didn't care about being truthful, moral, or without their they, error. They, they were looking to get rich. He says, that's not the way my ministry was characterized. And he says, on numerous occasions, you know, you remember as you know, you saw this. You saw this. What characterized Paul's ministry was that he was approved by God and entrusted to declare the gospel. I boldly declared the gospel. The reason I preached the gospel is because 
God has entrusted it to me. And then he talks about how he didn't do it to please man. He did it to please God. God tests my heart. And I'm doing this to please him. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul didn't want to please people. Elsewhere in his letters, he says he was willing to be all things to all people so that he could win some of them. He deeply cares about people. What he's getting at is that pleasing God is the ultimate goal of our lives. And that includes in our preaching, in our teaching, in our sharing of the gospel. Our chief end, our ultimate goal is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what better way to do that than be saturated, so saturated with the gospel, so ready to share it, that no matter what affliction comes, that's all you can help but do. That's what this guy did. And the idea of pleasing God rather than man is supported by almost every major section of the Old Testament and other letters from Paul. So he's saying, I have pure motives for my ministry or my, my missionary work in this city. I've been entrusted with the gospel and, and, and the gospel must be preached. And if I don't do this, I'm not going to be held accountable to you. I'm going to be held accountable to God. And friends, so are you. The Lord is going to bring you into places of your life and you're accountable to him to what you, for what you do not men so we don't have to be sinless to, to preach the gospel because if that were the case then exactly zero people except for Jesus would be preaching the gospel but we should make sure that the preaching that we do engage in is the true gospel so we do need to know our theology and then when we preach, our lives should reflect the reality of that which we're preaching. Our lives should match the content so far as it depends on us because we've died to sin and have been made alive together in Christ. Since God's the one who tests our hearts, we ought to do all things to please Him. And when we can't please people, we need to do what pleases God. We need to recognize also that sometimes we're a foul odor to people. But you never know when you'll be the fragrance of life. So cast your smell wherever you go and let God sort them out. The gospel was also preached honestly. Look at verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. This is the third time Paul says, as you know. He'll say it one more time in this chapter. He's invoking God as his witness as well. He's saying, this, what I'm saying is true. You saw it and God has seen it. He's defending himself from accusations about his ministry, he's trying to prove to them, to remind them that his ministry was not in vain. Their evidence of it and his life is evidence of it and the gospel that went forth and did what it promises to do is evidence of it. And God is our witness. So he's saying, remember our way of life. Remember our character. Remember how we treated you. Remember, you know, don't let these false accusations get you all caught up in the lies. They're not worth your time. Our ministry was not in vain. You experienced it and you are the evidence of it. 
Now, specifically under this heading of preaching honestly, Paul didn't come with flattery. That's what the, that's what the travelers would do. This was the common approach. They would come to flatter the crowds, to find the influential people and the rich people, and then they would tell them what it is that they wanted to hear so that they could make a profit out of it. It has to do with deception, of giving empty praise, false promises. So they're accused of giving false promises and using trickery to get people to accept the gospel. But that's not what Paul did. And he didn't do anything for greed. Paul wasn't greedy. In fact, we'll see when when you return to this that Paul labored and toiled working night and day so that he didn't have to ask the Thessalonian church to support him, even though he could have as an apostle. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't looking for, for a paycheck. He was looking for hearts of stone to be turned into hearts of flesh through the bold honest, upright preaching of the gospel. Now, these are false accusations. This is a smear campaign. This is, these, are, these, are, these are difficult things that Paul is dealing with, and they're coming outside of the church. But I think it's important for us to recognize that smear campaigns and difficulties come inside the church too. I'm going to hijack this to talk about a very real issue that I think is plaguing particularly the American church. Now, you may know that there is a, a, a movement that's caught exceptional traction, even in our own denomination, about uh, abusive pastors. This is, this is, these are some of the most listened to podcasts in the church right now. But that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the difficulties that pastors face as pastors. The difficulties that pastors face as those who have given their lives over to vocational ministry. Now, don't let this come across as a rebuke. This is not a rebuke. This is an encouragement. Particularly, this is an encouragement for you not to fall into the trap of, Oh, somebody else surely is going to be doing this. Somebody else surely is going to be asking these questions. Somebody else surely is going to X, Y, or Z. What I hope is that the topic that starts trending is how we can all collectively love and serve and take care of the ones who've given up their lives to take care and serve you. Many eyes are down right now. This takes the whole church. Don't let the elders be the only ones who are doing this. Tim read the statistics during our congregational meeting. I believe it was last week. But the average tenure of a pastor at a church is four years. That's not long enough. That's not long enough. Here's some more statistics. In our own denomination, I think this was done two years ago. Roughly 50% of PCA pastors polled said that they would either describe themselves in a time of burnout or approaching it. 50% approaching burnout or in burnout. So many of those preachers are preaching the gospel boldly, uprightly, and honestly. 
They are ready to share their lives with the church that they've been called to. There is clear evidence of faithfulness in their ministry. And it costs them and their families greatly. Look, I've got, I've got one more sermon left here. This is not self-serving. I hope you don't think this is self-serving. It's not meant to be self-serving. This is meant for you to look at this family right here and say, what am I doing to help them not be the statistic? The guy who's coming to fill the pulpit, to be the lead pastor. What am I doing to help that man thrive, not just survive? Don't let the scars of ministry come from your rod. Let it come from somewhere else. Every pastor counts the cost of ministry before, during, and after their ministry. And on the whole of it, Taylor and I's ministry here has been beautiful and you have treated us well. We're not leaving because we're part of that 50%. Many of that 50% leave the ministry and don't go back. We've been called somewhere else and we willingly go. But it has been hard, just like it's hard for every pastor of every church that's ever said yes to the call of vocational ministry. So let me give you some very practical things. Let me give you some very practical, easy ways to start. Ask the right questions from your elders about the well-being of your pastors. Make sure they know how your pastors are doing. And ask the right questions about your pastor and their family yourself. Don't trust that somebody else is doing it. You do it. And when a church is consumed with making sure that they're doing what they can do to love and serve their pastors, I bet my bottom dollar that four years will turn into a lot longer. Because they'll feel the love. They'll feel the support. They'll know that you are in it with them and that you want to pour into them as they pour out their lives for you. Austin and Ellen deserve that. Whoever's coming deserves that. Don't assume. You find out. Paul's ministry is not in vain because he preached boldly, honestly, and lived faithfully among the people. And there are countless, countless pastors in America right now doing the same. Don't get caught up in the trending topic. Create a new one of how to take good care from start to finish of your pastor. I could keep going, but I think we should go on to our fourth point, which also, as I sometimes do, is our conclusion. The gospel was preached doxologically. The gospel was preached to God's glory, not Paul's. We didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We didn't get into ministry to get glory from people, even though Paul could have said, I deserve it because I'm an apostle. He didn't do that. Uh, one commentator quoting somebody from, I believe, the first or second century, said this about the traveling philosophers and orators of the day. He says, they were like gorgeous peacocks lifted high on the wings of glory as they spoke. That's not what Paul does. That's not what any faithful minister of the gospel does. They were preaching for God's glory, and that's what we preach for as well. 
Every faithful minister of the gospel wants you to forget about him and wants you to remember the glory of Jesus Christ. While he's preaching. This is one of the reasons why reformed pastors have and still do put robes on. They would put the robe on right before they enter the pulpit to cover themselves up and all you see is their neck and head basically. Now, if I did that here or a pastor did that in Utah, you'd have to explain yourself every Sunday. And so we just don't do it, although there's value in it. And then they would take that robe off when they get out of the pulpit. And there's your pastor again. The preacher was covered and heralding God's word. Then he gets out and he's your pastor. And while, while all that is true, that we preach for the glory of God, be willing to encourage your pastor in his preaching ministry. Don't tell them they're the greatest preacher ever. You'd be lying. But they need your encouragement. Austin's going to need your encouragement over the course of the next six or 12 months. Whoever comes as the lead pastor is going to need your encouragement in his preaching ministry. It's good for your pastor to hear words like this. Thank you for all of your labors. Thank you for the way that you've labored, studied, prayed, cried over, and thought about me as you preached and prepared for that sermon. Those are God-glorifying words. You don't have to tell your preacher how great the message was, but encourage him that he got a message out in the midst of all the other things that he did that week. He's not doing it for his own glory. He's doing it for the glory of God and for the good of those whom he's been called to preach. Paul preached boldly. He preached clearly. He preached Honestly, and when pastors do that, it's never done in vain. Despite the smear campaign, his ministry was blessed. And despite the doubts in the church now, as Timothy reported to Paul, he says, this is all done to the glory of God, and it was a faithful ministry. So remember this, brothers and sisters, over the coming months, Remember when you're ready for the pastoral search to be over. When a guest preacher comes and preaches shorter or preaches longer than you're, than you're ready for. Remember that the gospel is preached and when the word of God goes forth, it never returns void. Let's pray. Father, we pray and sincerely ask you to protect this church from its internal disunity or smear campaigns in its membership or towards any of her pastors now or in the future. May each one, each one here who calls Grace Church home love all of the others who call Grace Church home and make it easy for their pastors to count the cost of ministry. Father, faithful ministry by your preachers and pastors who preach and live the gospel is never in vain. Help all of your people throughout this globe remember that. And may every man who fills a pulpit preach with boldness, clarity, honesty, and for your glory. From this pulpit 
and for all your true churches throughout the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, please stand for our closing.